I mean, I was actually told this because I got engaged um, quite young and particularly young for um, someone who coming from a secular liberal background. So I got engaged when I was 24 and married when I was 25. And I remember speaking to a friend who was a bit older than me about it at the time. And she said very explicitly, like, you are making a mistake. You should be spending your 20s having as many like different sexual romantic experiences as possible and experimenting and finding out who you are. And then you can settle down in 10 years or something. Um, and luckily I didn't follow her advice. <laughs> Terrible advice. What terrible advice? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Classically Ever After. On today's podcast, I'm interviewing Louise Perry, author of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, a book we read for book club, and she's answering your questions. I'm really looking forward to sharing this podcast with you all today, so make sure to take a listen all the way to the end, and we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming next week. So thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Classically Ever After. I'm so excited to have you. We recently read your book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, uh, with our book club, and it was a fantastic discussion. People were really into it. They enjoyed it immensely. Also learned a lot because I mean, there's so much to talk about with this book. Um, so I'm going to ask you the question that I'm sure you've heard ad nauseum at this point, but what inspired you to write The Case Against the Sexual Revolution? I wish I had a better answer because, because yes, you're right. People do ask me a lot and I wish I had some beautiful anecdote of the, mo- you know, the moment where I decided to do it. Um, sadly not. I mean, I, I've, I've been, um, working around this space in a lot of different ways for a decade, really. Um, initially in what I studied at university and then in working in rape crisis and then in as a journalist and then as a campaigner and, as, and, and I kept sort of being led back to this, to this narrative of the sexual revolution, this idea that it had been done for women, by women, that it was unambiguously a good thing and I, I kept, I, I just kept thinking how flawed that narrative was. And I felt as though no one had really written down my specific objections to that. And so I yeah. thought I probably should. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like you have the background for it. Um, but the thing that I found fascinating was that, you know, I went online to search Louise Perry like on any streaming streaming platform to see kind of what you'd said before, who'd interviewed you. And what's fascinating is how many people have interviewed you on both sides of the political spectrum. I mean, you've got people on the far left talking to you about this book. You've got people on the far right talking to you about this book. So did you expect your book to strike a chord with so many different people, people on both sides of the aisle? Um. No. <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't expect it to be as big a deal as it's been because I, this is my first book. I, I published with a, a, a very small academic publishing house. Um, I don't think anyone thought that it was going to be quite make quite as big an impact as it has, which is obviously a great problem to have. I've had such an exhausting summer, let me tell you, because I can't believe tough- it. Because we have a toddler at home and I've got all these other work commitments and everyone wants to talk about this book all the time, which is obviously wonderful, but it's slightly overwhelming. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it, I would say that it's probably been a bit, I've probably had a little bit more positive attention from conservatives. Yeah. So, sort of centre, centre, right range. But you're right that there has been, there's been feedback from across the political spectrum and and it is mostly been positive amazingly because I did think when writing it I would I, I sometimes I'd write sentences and I'd be like that's it I'm done that's my that's my career own because it's there's so much cancelable stuff in this book but I, I I made the decision early on that I thought that trying to kind of pander to any particular audience was going to make it ring false so I thought it was better to just be as honest as I felt I could be and kind of let people say what they will. I, I mean, it's interesting that there have been a few other books. Um, it's this funny thing about publishing that it has quite a long lead time. So you're talking 
when you sign a contract, you're expecting a book to come out maybe two years later. So it's quite so. So you quite often have this phenomenon where people are sensing something in the air, and then there ends up being books coming out at the same time that are on roughly the same topic. So I've had that. So there have been a few other um, books roughly in this space in the last year or two. But I think so far, at least, mine is probably the one that most sort of that kills the greatest number of progressive sacred cows. <laughs> and that seems to be what people want. I think actually people are desperate for what, I mean, what the probably the most common piece of feedback that I've, I've had from readers is, um, I've been thinking this for years, thank you for saying it because I didn't feel like I was, I could say it before. And now I, and now I feel able to, because of, you know, having had seen it set down on paper. Um, so I, I suppose what, I suppose the reason that it has had the impact that it's had is because a lot of us must've been thinking the same thing for a long time. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's coming from a more religious perspective. I'm an Orthodox Jew. Um, you know, this is something that I, I talk about in maybe less explicit of a way, although sometimes explicitly, but more saying dating for marriage is a good thing. Dating with purpose is a good thing. You're putting yourself in bad situations when you are dating for quote unquote fun and constantly and consistently getting hurt. Now that can be like emotionally, but in, you know, in the book, we're also talking about physically in both danger and just getting, making decisions that you regret. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that hearing that from somebody who isn't explicitly religious can give people permission who mm -hmm. are not religious to, to agree <laughs> instead of saying, oh, this has to be from a religious perspective. And if I'm not religious, then I have to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm entirely in favor of the sexual revolution. I feel like your perspective, given that at least from the way that you've portrayed it throughout your interviews in your book. I, it, I don't know if you're religious, but it seems that you're not. Um, it gave women permission to say, I, I also don't feel great about the things that I've been sold mm. as something I should be doing with my life. Mm. It's funny that we feel that need for permission, isn't it? But it is such a common human, human trait. Yeah. 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 Especially as women, I think. Yes, I think so too. I think it's partly to do with us being um, more agreeable than men on average. I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah. And femininity is all about being... So I think probably what happens is that women are naturally more agreeable than men, and I think that probably has a lot to do with um, our minds being primed for motherhood because you have to be so wildly agreeable with your baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's because all about... Because motherhood is all about putting your children's needs first um yeah. and so i think we're we're already sort of primed for that and then femininity that when we're in being feminine involves being even more agreeable and obviously there are upsides to that because agreeableness is lovely it's really nice to be around agreeable people it's you know um it's what kind of keeps the social show on the road but the downside of it is that you do sometimes have a tendency to to, to sort of um, put your own needs second to the point of being self-destructive. And I think as well, in, in part, it also encourages you to do what you think everyone else is doing yeah. and fit in. And yeah. so when you are, I think this is especially uh, a problem in college, when you're surrounded by women who are telling you that the best way to find fulfillment is to an empowerment is to sleep with as many people as possible and disregard how you actually feel about it at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to slip into that as a practice and try to justify after the fact why you feel bad. It's society that's making me feel bad. It's, other people. It's outside influences that are making me feel the way that I do. If none of that existed, I could have sex willy-nilly and no one could hurt me. Um, mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the time that's, I think all of the time, that's not the case. I think that women, uh, or rather, I guess, going off of what you said in the book regarding sex sociosexuality and how uh, there are those few outliers, perhaps those few outliers, that's the case. But I think for mm -hmm. most women, um, it is 
an innate thing that you're not meant or built for just random hookups with people you've never met and with relationships that are not going to go anywhere and with men who may not be safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing the, the, um, the ability that we have, most of us, to suppress those feelings and to construct or to gravitate towards narratives which, which retell what's going on in a more palatable way. But then I I don't think I have ever, I have spoken to so many women, both before and after the publication of this book, who said that they had this exact journey of doing, doing the hookup culture thing, feeling bad, not quite like knowing why, telling themselves the progressive story to make it seem better. And then later on saying, hang on, I can't believe I put up with that. You know, what a mistake. I have never found anyone who's gone in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really telling. It is really telling. And I can tell you as somebody who grew up religious and didn't do, uh, you know, didn't engage in hookup culture because from a religious perspective, it was wrong. Then I did. I like what I went into college and I'm very open about this on my channel, even though I come from a very traditional perspective. Um, A lot of that is informed by the decisions I made when I decided to kind of go off the beaten path, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, and I decided, oh, I want to, I want to try this stuff that everyone's telling me is going to be empowering. And I would feel awful the next day. And it had nothing to do. I think there's kind of this misperception or misconception that it would be because I had ingrained in me these religious feelings of guilt, Mm -hmm. but it had nothing to do with that. It had to do, it had everything to do with, oh, I and, you know, hooking up with someone who I have no feelings for mm-hmm. and they really have no feelings for me. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm getting more attached than he is or whatever it is. And that just felt bad. And as I moved out of that and into a relationship that, you know, married and I have a child, like this is the most fulfilled I've ever had in my life. And it's because this is, I think, is healthy. Like this is protective for me. It's protection for my child from, you know, a very practical perspective. And then from a very not practical perspective, I get to live the best life by having, you know, love every single day from my husband and from my, from my baby. Mm. Yeah. I think it is so, um, I don't know if you read Bridget Fetisi's essay that she, cause I went on, I went on her podcast to talk about the book and she, she later wrote um, this amazing essay which she said she'd been working on for years, but it was reading the book that made her sort of spurred her on to finish it. And there's a, she writes about this feeling of, this horrible feeling of having sex with men who who basically wouldn't care if you got hit by a bus next week. There's no, there's no love there. There's no affection there. There's nothing. And the, and the, and the, the crux for her, the crucial moment is when she gets a text from a guy that she's been hooking up with saying, good night, love you or something along that something along those lines. And then he immediately follow ups, follows up with sorry, wrong person. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, uh. Yeah, um, and that's not uncommon. <laughs> no. no, it's not. If anything, it's regarded as a rite of passage. Yeah. Not exactly. quite that ext- extreme level of like <laughs> texting um, embarrassment, but um, yes, the, the idea that you should, you should, I mean, I was actually told this because I got engaged um, quite young and particularly young for um, someone who coming from a secular liberal background. So I got engaged when I was 24 and married when I was 25. And I remember speaking to a friend who was a bit older than me about it at the time. And she said very explicitly, like, you are making a mistake. You should be spending your 20s having as many like different sexual romantic experiences as possible and experimenting and finding out who you are. And then you can settle down in 10 years or something. Um, and luckily I didn't follow her advice. <laughs> terrible advice. What terrible advice? <laughs> but, so, but, but so um but it's such a common idea that that um that sex is like a skill set that has to be refined with as many partners as possible. That's kind of the idea. Um, which is of course why you get in, in, in women's mags, you'll get things like, uh, guide to having sex from sex workers or, cause the idea is that it, it, that it is just this kind of, um, alienated skill set, which can be commodified, 
which doesn't have any intrinsic specialness and which isn't sort of attached to the people. It's like something you do to someone, not yeah, something that you I do re- with someone. I, uh, I remember in college, I uh, there was a guy who was interested in me and I was very explicit that I wasn't. So when I said I was hooking up before, I should clarify that I never had sex before I was married, but I did my own version of hookups. <laughs> and uh, so I told this guy in college, you know, I'm not having sex until I'm married. And he said to me, his response was, how can you buy a car if you've never test driven it? Mm. And in my I quickly responded by saying, I don't think these are two similar things. (laughs) Sex is not something that I need to test drive with the person before I get married to them because Mm -hmm. that isn't like the sex is good because it's with the right person Mm -hmm. and it's about the emotional connection. And because you love each other, if, you know, initially it's not the the best uh, experience, you work on it together. It's Mm -hmm. not something you have to be like, immediately great at which is why you know a lot of couples where both people are virgins they get married and then it becomes something that they work together and it becomes their unique sex life that they love mm-hmm. and that they enjoy each other through mm-hmm. um but it's so funny because we have been in my book club reading books uh we kind of alternate fiction nonfiction, and leading up to your book which was not necessarily originally on the docket. I actually heard you on Barry Weiss' podcast. I, I uh, follow her on Substack. And, uh, but I came across your book and it was like the culmination of two other books that we'd read. So we'd read the book, The Joy of Intimacy by Rabbi Manus Friedman, which if you've never read it, it's lovely. <laughs> and uh, we also read the book, Cheap Sex, um, oh, yeah. which you probably have read or heard of, and it's mm-hmm. in a similar vein as what you wrote, um, although from a very different perspective. And I, uh, when we read this book, I said to my to my subscribers, doesn't this feel like everything we're talking about just put into one, in, into one volume? <laughs> um, because it does take those ideas of, you know, sex is more than just a physical experience going to the bathroom or eating soup it's it is something different which is why when you mentioned in the book that things like the me too movement things like rape you know those are so much more serious than other forms of assault because we know that there's this is a uniquely different activity mm-hmm. yeah and that, and that if you try and pretend that sex is, is is does not have a special status, then you can't also claim that rape has a special status. You end up stuck um, in a really sort of anti anti woman anti human positions. Um, but so many people will go around saying that actually sex is um, like like playing squash. That was the analogy someone used with me recently. Um, he didn't believe it. It was just you know, his example that kind of stuck in my mind. Playing squash. Um, but no one actually behaves like that way, that way. We might rhetorically say that sex is meaningless, that you can buy or whatever, that it should be um, that it should be stripped of all meaning. But actually, no one behaves like that because I don't yeah. think you can really. I think, particularly as a woman, I think that women find it harder than men to disentangle sex from emotion. But um, it's true for men as well. I just, I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone believes it. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So speaking of, you brought up sex work. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a reader question from our book club. Please. Um, Yeah. So one of my readers asked with regards to sex work, she had done some journalism with sex workers in Germany. And she wanted to know if sex work is criminalized or made illegal or off the table, how do we protect women who are in the industry? Hmm. So that the, the <clears throat> I mean, I should start by saying, I don't think there is a perfect legal solution to this. I don't think that um, the sad fact is that prostitution ha- does pretty much always exist in every society because there are always women who are, 
who are de- who are desperate. Um, but it the size of the sex industry varies a lot between different societies and different historical periods. So it's not hopeless, but also, you know, the perfect shouldn't be the enemy of the good. What, what, what we're looking for is the, the, the legal model that seems to best protect the women. And my reading of the data is that empirically, the legal model that seems to best protect the women is the Nordic model, named for because it was originally um, implemented in Sweden um, and Norway. It's since also in France, in Israel, in Ireland, various other countries have implemented it. Um, in the Nordic, in the Nordic model, basically criminalizes the purchase of sex, but decriminalizes the sale of it. Um, and the the way that it is supposed to function is that if you say do a raid on a brothel, you show up and the, you show up with police and you show up with social workers, and the police arrest the punters and they offer services to the women. Um, the, the recognizing the fact that these women are actually victims of sexual of, of sexual abuse and deserve help and protection, which is often not, of course, the legal model that has been adopted in, in most times and places where often it's actually the person, the women who are persecuted, the men who are let off the hook. That to me is deeply anti-feminist. And that is, and that's a point on which I think basically all feminists of every stripe are in agreement. No one thinks that we should be um that we should be criminalizing women and persecuting yeah. women. Um I mean the argument from the from the from the decrim side is that um by uh criminalizing some aspects of you know one half of the exchange you you end up um pushing the market underground. I'm not convinced by that in terms of just, I mean, partly the data on it and partly just intuitively, it can't be that underground because punters do still have to find women they want to buy sexual access to. Um, And also the fact is that actually, even when there has been full legalization attempted in places like Germany, you still end up with prostitution being deeply embedded in the black market and in criminal gangs because the nature of the industry is that vast majority of women don't want to do it. <clears throat> I mean, I would say probably all women actually don't want to do it. You will see, There are some women who might consider it to be the least worst option. Um, and uh, there are you know, a handful of women who are hugely boosted in the media who will say that they actually find it okay, they find it pretty good, whatever. The, the vast majority of women, though, are there because they're very poor, because they're addicted to drugs, because they're pimped, because they're trafficked. And the problem with um, legalising the industry of any or, or decriminalising it, the problem with not criminalising the punters, is that in countries where buying sex is permitted, men do it more a higher proportion, this is so obvious, but it has to be said, a higher proportion of the male population will have bought sex in countries where they are allowed to. Criminalization doesn't deter everyone, but it does deter quite a lot of them. And the greater the demand for paid sex, the greater the supply needed in order to meet it. And if there aren't enough women to meet it willingly, which there aren't typically, gangs will supply unwilling women. You know, like an, an an amazing proportion, for instance, of women in UK brothels are from Romania, because it's one of the poorest countries in the EU, and the women are white who are more desirable. Like that, on, the, the the mechanics of the sex industry are just appalling <laughs> in every possible way. Um, and the problem we've had in somewhere like Germany and in Netherlands and other places that that, that permit this, the, the, the purchase of sex is you end up with a lot more trafficking, you end up with a much bigger sex industry, you end up with a lot more lives ruined by it. So, yeah, my answer is there isn't a perfect model in terms of completely protecting all of the women, unfortunately, but I think that the Nordic model is the best of a bad set of options. I think that's a, that's a very good answer. Um, many women are forced to enter the casual sexual marketplace in order to compete for male attention even if they want to wait for a more serious relationship to have sex, if the women we are trying to persuade to eschew the sexual revolution don't listen, you know, are, are not open to hearing this, is there a role 
for social shame to make these behaviors less acceptable in our society to protect the women who are forced into casual sexual encounters. And uh, I know the word shame is so like off the table in today's lexicon, Mm -hmm. but I think sometimes from my perspective, I think that there are times where and, and places where shame can be useful as long as it doesn't put women in a bad position, you know, who have engaged and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts on, on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that shame is just, the, the, the war on shame is never going to be won because mm-hmm. shame is just, uh, is the emotion we feel when we define social norms. Um, and those norms um can be very good and very necessary you know you should you should feel shame if you do bad things um the question is what what we what we consider to be bad and what norms we construct um yeah so the the difficulty is with my preference if i could design society on the back of an envelope would be for the the promiscuous men to be the ones who suffer shame and stigma because I think they're actually the ones who are who are encouraging women to do things that they don't really want to do and are behaving badly and so on um I have a I have a strong anti-fuckboy agenda right (laughs) the difficulty I suppose is whether or not that's actually feasible because we know that um we know that female intersexual competition is a very powerful force. This is what the, the term that evolution biologists use, to, not just for our species, but for many other species, used to describe women competing with each other for male sexual attention. And what has um, happened essentially post-pill, post-sexual revolution, is that the, um, the, le- the, the, the level of, of, of sexual openness within that competitive space has gone up a lot. So now if you're not willing to have sex on the first date, for instance, you're at a disadvantage if you're competing with other women who are, because that's what that's what the men are expecting. And historically, the way that that um, sort of that competitive playing field has been regulated has been among women. And it does tend to be women who dole out slut shaming men actually very rarely slut shame men are generally not especially interested in doing that it tends to be something that women do to each other and so i and also that you know that women are doing already this is the other thing that it's not as if we're this this fantasy that we're currently in a scenario where people are completely sexually free and they can do whatever they want no that's not true at all we just have a different template now that you're expected to conform to and now the the um the expectation is that you shouldn't be frigid. That's actually what's what's stigmatized. So it's not as though there's any less shame. It's just shame associated with a different set of behaviors. I mean, I, I, um, in the UK, we did a lot of, I, I worked for a campaign group, which is, um, uh, originally focused on, uh, this phenomenon in the UK and in other countries where men would um, kill women, always always male defendants and the vast majority of victims women, and they would claim that they died as a result of consensual rough sex. And that's the sort of narrative that you can spin or could spin before the law was changed um, and pretty much get away with it because you can't prove it either way and it would inject doubt into the jury's minds and you would end up with men getting very, very light sentences for manslaughter when actually it tore in terms of bubs that they had just they had murdered this woman and she couldn't give her a side of the story. But it was all linked, um, we argue, to the normalisation of rough sex in general and violent porn and, and this increasingly prevalent view that women will seek out potentially lethal violence in sex um, and that you know men who just give women what they want should be excused I mean, for appalling consequences. And... When I w- would would I wrote an article at one point for the Telegraph about why um, the vote for choking during sex is a bad thing, and that we shouldn't see aggressive sexual violence like that, even if consensual, as something to be uh, aspired to. And a really high proportion of the people who called me a a frigid prude on on Twitter were women. 
Yeah, because <laughs> because I think it's that female intersexual competition in play. It's that feeling of wanting to sort of. Re- I mean, I think what was going on is those women really didn't like the suggestion that what they were doing in bed was not high status because the because the the norm right now, at least in some progressive circles, is that things like choking is very cool, is very adventurous, is a sign that you're up for it, you are sexually liberated, all of this. And I think to have someone say that actually the opposite is true really stings. So one wants to necessarily hear that they're doing something either not cool or just bad. I mean, that's, Mm. that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. People are very, I mean, you can see, you can see why people are very, very sensitive about um, their sexual preferences. And it's, um, and I think it's an area where um, there is often many, many layers of, um self-deception yeah for that for that exact reason yeah i agree with that um so i have another reader question Mm -hmm. um my question for louise perry concerns her statement in conclusion listen to your mother which is don't use dating apps for a lot of people, whether they are introverted or don't live in an area with good social opportunities, or they are just really busy with work, online dating is a very convenient option. What advice would Louise give for women who use dating apps who are looking for a serious, committed relationship and want to keep safe from violent men? Yeah, and I, you know, and I, I do realize I wrote that we're having been married for ages, and you know, from a position of privilege in the sense that I don't need to use dating apps. Clearly, the thing that they the, the massive advantage of dating apps is they give you access to this huge pool of people. And particularly if you're in um, an area where it's really hard to meet people, I completely get, I completely get, get the temptation. I think though the problem with them is um, you are basically meeting a stranger from the internet. There's no social regulation in place. You know, if you if you meet someone through friends or through work or through church or whatever, you have some degree of, you have access to their reputation and also they, um, there's a disincentive to behave badly because there'll be social consequences within your network if either of you behave badly. I mean, I've actually had I've had female friends say to me quite candidly that they they have behaved more badly than they would otherwise on dating apps because things like ghosting, you know, not sexual assault or anything, but 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 just rudeness that they wouldn't they wouldn't behave like that if they had any kind of chance of meeting this person ever again but there's that feeling that like oh well we're in a we're in a city of millions of people who cares um right. <laughs> so it's a it really it's really disinhibitory um for people's worst instincts which is a real problem it's also a problem that now everyone is on them and things like even just speaking to people in a bar or whatever people did in the olden days i don't even know i wasn't there um <laughs> That's much less common now because the feeling is that apps, the apps are actually the sort of um, the polite way to go about it almost, that approaching people is a bit weird. So I, I, I totally get that people are in a sticky situation. I also think that, you know, I spoke to a friend for it. I, I wrote an essay about the 10 years of Tinder a couple of months ago. And I spoke to some lots of friends who'd used Tinder and, and, and got lots of um, people. And, I, you know, I had one friend who is, who is gorgeous, who is such a catch, and she said that she has gone on countless dates through dating apps. Ninety-five percent of them don't result in a second date. So the so the I know, it's, and she's still single. So the the quantity that you can get through dating apps, if you're a woman, not if you're a man, because there's this asymmetry, you know. But if you're if pretty much any woman can get a lot of matches and go on a lot of dates through dating apps, but if if you've got a ninety-five percent failure rate. It's that feeling I used to have. I lived in New York uh, when I was single. I had the exact same age situation as you, by the way, with my marriage. I got engaged at 24. Or actually, rather, I got engaged close. Got engaged when I was 23. Got married when I was 24. And I do have to laugh because I come from a religious background. And so when you said, yeah, I was a little young for 24 and getting married at 25, <laughs> for me, that's like, that's you know, I was... 
<laughs> it's not ancient, but you know, in this yeah. secular community, people, I did live in the secular community for a while. So when I got engaged at 23, people were like shocked. And I was like, no, like that's like on the higher end. <laughs> and it is, it is funny. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, when I was living in New York, I always felt like people, it's almost even without being on an app, it's like a similar experience of happening in person where someone is talking to you and looking over your shoulder to see if there's anyone better behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like that was yeah. very common in yeah. my in my social interactions in New York and Tinder is just that online. But um, my response to my, my uh, subscriber when she mentioned that question was, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I used an app called when I was dating called coffee meets bagel, where it worked through mutual friends that you had Mm. on Facebook. So you could, yeah. So I don't know if it's in the UK, but it, um, it allowed you to reach out to that mutual friend on Facebook. Mm, interesting. Um, so it's the yeah. best of both worlds. A little bit. It kind of gives yeah. you an opportunity to like meet everybody who's on apps and mm. also not be totally unmoored from the social network that, that mm. can regulate behaviors. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I mean... <sighs> I think it is still, I also, my experience of this, the same with friendship. I don't know if you in the States have, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a, there's an app here, which is designed to be an app, like a dating app, but for mums to make friends with other mums. I yeah. probably exists here and I don't know after that. I can't, I can't remember what it's called. I, I personally have never used it. And I, I've never really been one in terms of making friends. I've never really enjoyed that thing of going like going along to an art class going on you know like meeting strangers and hoping to strike up friendships um sometimes you get those kind of situational friendships like if say you're both like I I went to when when um our son was little I went to like mum gym classes and stuff like that and you would sort of have like happy chatting relationships with other mums or whatever but for really proper lasting friendships I've always always found that making friends with your friends friends yeah. Is, the, is the way because they've yeah. already because they've already selected those people on the basis of really liking them and having things in common and so there's a pretty good chance that you'll have the same thing and also because you have the added like um you have the network which really even embeds the friendship further because you can meet as a group and all this kind of stuff it's always better to have friendships where you have extra links not just the one person and I really think the relationships are the same thing I mean obviously you do end up with a smaller pool if you're going just via your people people who know people you know but also the quality is so much higher yeah so it might not seem initially as if it's a, a more effective route but I really think it is that's how I met my husband that's how I, I think I would say most of my the couples we know met um and it's that same for me yeah, I was introduced yeah. by a mutual friend yeah. And, yeah. I, and I also, I also think I have a lot of people who come to me and ask me, I have too many female friends and too few male friends, but I, I have a lot of friends who come to me and say, do you know anyone who will be, and sometimes it works, you know, you just, you do a party and you make sure you like do it, do it natural, but make sure that people are introduced to one another. Um, it's good friend behavior to do that. I wish, I think it should be more normalized. It's not, it's not interfering. It's not, it's just giving people opportunities to meet. I feel exactly the same way. I actually talk about that a lot too. <laughs> um, so focusing in on your book for a second, I loved two terms that you used and uh, I just wanted to hear more of your thoughts on them uh, because I so, I don't want to say, like in a sense related to what you were saying. So you said the two terms I loved were sexual disenchantment mm-hmm. and chronological snobbery. Mm. Chronological snobbery especially stood out to me because Mm -hmm. as somebody who kind of totes myself as the traditional values lady, (laughs) um, I find that a lot of people like to eschew things that they think of as old timey pastime, like not, not useful anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially as an Orthodox Jew, where so much of what we practice is stuff that looks very foreign from a modern uh, perspective, 
I loved your discussion of it. So I just wanted to hear some more thoughts on that. <laughs> um, well, they're connected as well, aren't they? I mean, so chronological snobbery is not my coinage. That is C- that's C- that's C.S. Lewis's term. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it expresses so succinctly a thing that I think we all recognise that view that that really perverse view that you get sometimes is that um, that you will you will have people respond to say you say something like I don't know what's an example um, women don't like casual sex as much as men do say you make that kind of statement you will often have progressives who'll come at you and say but that's what people have always said you know that's a really that's a really stereotypical view that's just something that people and so if a lot of people have said it does that not actually in, in a whole range of diverse times and places does that not actually suggest that it's more likely to be true <laughs> <laughs> like it's completely backwards if it's completely unique to our era to think something that probably actually suggests that we're wrong because the, because the whole chronological snobbery thing is based, I, I suppose, on the idea that there's something worse about people in the past. That just if you happen to be born in a particular era, that suggests that there's something, there's some badness and some stupidity that you can't escape from, which I think is just clearly false. There have, there have been, um, I think people of every era are just as likely to be um, bad or good or wise or stupid as we are. Um it's just kind of like, it's just kind of luck of the draw. Um, I don't know and if you read. Um, I sorry to interrupt you, but I don't know if you read um, Carl Truman's Brave New World. Uh, no, it's not called Brave New World. I always call it that, and that is the wrong name. Uh, he wrote a new book called Strange New World. Uh, I know um, his I know his name, but I I haven't read that book. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Oh um, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I think it addresses some of what you're talking about of why we look at things from the past as um, as just irrelevant and why mm. we think that we know better than the thing came before us because there is a, a you know very Rousseauian idea that like noble savage that if you eschew all of the trappings of society and the things that came before you then you're actually your purest self mm. but um I, and I loved when you used the quote from C.S. Lewis about um, the fence in the woods, uh, the idea that if you see a fence in the woods and you're, I, I mean, he doesn't say conservative and liberal, but if I, I don't think he does. But if a uh, liberal sees it, they might go, oh, why is this here? Take down. And a conservative would look at it and think, well, there's a reason this was here. So maybe we should mm-hmm. like take a look and understand why before we take it down. And I think that is a very visual representation of chronological snobbery. Mm-hmm. I was having this conversation yesterday, actually, with, with some friends that um, the the charge that's often leveled against conservatives mm-hmm. is it's completely unrealistic to think that you can go back to X decade, the 1950s being the classic example. Um, I think that's true. I think it is very difficult to say recreate like a decade like the 1950s is strange for all sorts of reasons historically so the idea that you can just construct it anew I think is is impractical but I think that what is both practical and sensible is to look at all other cultures not just not just the you know Anglo cultures of the past but um cultures in other overseas now and look at the common themes in successful cultures and say, okay, so, so, um, marriage customs are, everyone has those, you know, the monogamous marriage societies tend to do particularly well. I have some data on that in the book. It's like, it's just straightforwardly a numbers game. Monogamous societies tend to do better in all sorts of ways. Um, the family seems to be a central building block, you know, that it's not that, you have to necessarily recreate something very directly. It's more looking at common themes and saying, well, there's this, we're the weird ones, actually. You know, what? <laughs> there, are, there are no other cultures that I'm aware of that go around pretending that men and women don't really exist and that think that families are irrelevant and that, you know, that, that the, the extended family in pretty much every time and place is absolutely essential to human flourishing and is the basic unit 
of society. Whereas we are very strange, I think, in thinking that the individual is the basic unit of society. The disconnected individual. Oh, and I forgot, you also mentioned in your book that you were quoting Jonathan Haidt, and I had read The Righteous Mind, and uh, what you're saying is reminding me of that because he talks about weird people. Mm. And how, um, you know, the acronym for weird, which I can never remember off the top of my head, but how. (laughs) Uh, Western, educated, industrialized, something, something. Rationalist, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. (laughs) But how it's just so how we are weird, like how Mm. the West thinks that we're much more um, sophisticated because we are so rationalist and we eschew normal feelings of disgust or that's just an example, but Mm -hmm. that and how that I think ultimately leads to our detriment when it comes to things that are good for us to be disgusted by Mm -hmm. and very much comes into play with what we're talking about in the relationship between men and women for sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whereas because I, I think that um, I think liberal feminism trains women out of respecting their intuition. Yes, and it's not that intuition is always like like offers complete access to the truth, but it's important. Uh, the, I think that I think that purposefully disregarding it is a really really severe mistake, and that's what really? that's what that's what this culture trains young women in particular to do. And going off of going off of that, um, it is interesting that you know you were also discussing how the disgust factor is lowered as the sexual interest is peaked, um, and you were discussing that in regards to porn. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is all that also comes into play in a sexual encounter if a woman is in a sexual encounter where she would theoretically not be like totally interested in proceeding all the way, but then she's Mm -hmm. kind of far enough in that, Oh, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm turned on. I want to continue. I want to proceed. You get to the end of the whole encounter and you're like, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm sure that's right. The feeling the, 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 I use a quote in the book in that point. So the, in the, in the porn analogy, um, it's that, the the sites are set up to arouse you as quickly as possible so you log on and immediately you're bombarded with sexual stimuli and the effect of that is that your moral reasoning is deadened because um disgust response is linked to moral reasoning and your disgust response is suppressed when you're sexually aroused and then and i think i quote uh, um, a researcher who's who interviewed lots of um, female porn users about this and they spoke about that feeling of pushing the laptop away and I and I think that that's basically the same emotion you're describing the post hookup pushing the pushing the laptop away pushing the experience away Which yeah it's really sad because I think it also I think that there's a, there's a difference between regret and something are scarier, uh, where a woman, you know, was legitimately taken advantage of and a a situation where a woman allowed herself to be taken advantage of. And that blurriness of lines is not good for women or men. Uh, but I, I think it's especially not good for women either. Like it doesn't, it's so, you know, women are contending with so much having to deal with the, the sexual revolution. We're not just dealing with oh, I don't want to have sex and now I'm being forced to have sex so I can compete in the market or I want or I don't want to have sex and, you know, all of these other options or I want to have sex and uh, whatever it is. It's also like just the blurriness of what all of this stuff means nowadays. Like, mm-hmm. What am I doing? What, do, what does this mean to the person I'm having sex with? What does it mean to me right now? Was I taken advantage of or did I just do something that I don't like that I did? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's so much to contend with. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a failure in, in me too. I mean, I guess me too is still ongoing, but at the height of me too, in that, you know, the classic response from opponents of me too was to say, these are just women who are, who they've not been assaulted. 
they haven't been mistreated. They're just regretting sexual encounters. And there's a bit of truth in that, in that I think that a lot of the more grey area kind of encounter, like sexual misbehaviour that was described in, by, by many women in Me Too was not criminal and actually was pretty much in keeping with standard like expectations in our sexual culture. So the men didn't hadn't really done anything wrong or what they or what or not within the parameters that they had, had laid out for them. The problem was the parameters were really bad and the culture was really bad. And the whole thing is set up to induce regret and distress and misery in women who are having basically unwanted sex. But the the failure was not really with the men, or at least only partially with the men, those individual men. The failure is with the whole setup. And the most Me Too proponents weren't really willing to to, to accept that. Um because they they wanted it just to be about consent. They wanted it to still be completely within the kind of liberal consent framework. Um and I don't think they drilled down enough into the fundamental mistakes that that go back to the 1960s so the the the, my argument in the book is the problem the the analysis of many me too proponents and liberal feminists of me too and why it was necessary is that the sexual revolution was incomplete in that the project had been about freeing us and it was evident from all this distress that we hadn't been freed at all i think that the project was the mistake i think the whole idea of prioritizing freedom inevitably leads to this outcome because you have this innate sexual asymmetry between men and women that isn't going away. I have one more reader question and then one more of my own questions. (laughs) So uh, one more reader question. In your book, you say it's quite possible to be pro-choice and insist that men ought to take responsibility for the children they help. I appreciate and agree with how you offer monogamous marriage as a safe place for sex. However, do you think this is convincing to a leftist? Oh, well, they did that. My leftist um, readers dislike that chapter the most. So not always, <laughs> no. I mean, I, well, I have lots of people who said, um, like, I see your argument. I respect it. But no. <laughs> um, and then I, and then I had people who who were just like chapters one through seven great chapter eight you completely <laughs> lost me so I don't know I've, I've I hope I've persuaded some people but not everyone by any means um, mm-hmm. but I I mean I think it's completely coherent I think that the I don't think that you have to be coming from a position of respect and tradition and religion and, and and religious ethics to conclude that monogamous marriage is the best thing for women and children I think that you can construct that argument from secular principles and you can use data and you can use rationality and all this stuff that is you know respected within the the kind of um, liberal framework so that's what I tried to do in that chapter yeah that's funny that leading in that does exactly lead into my question my own question which is um because Britain doesn't have a Christian right like America does mm-hmm. In your interviews and your book, it came across that it's important to you to distinguish yourself from the Christian right in order to keep your point separate from a religious viewpoint. But to someone who is religious, it feels like so many pieces of your advice stem from a Judeo-Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's like an unbreakable link between the views you're espousing and the religious foundation on which they're built? I'm actually writing a long essay about this right now because, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that my, I think that the reason that my ethical claims in the book resonate with a lot of secular people is because we are still living in the shadow of those Judeo-Christian values and secular people still mostly subscribe to them roughly, even though they wouldn't necessarily describe them in those terms. So things yeah. like the, the principles like equality, um, which we now call human rights, you know, as if it's things like valorizing um, the weak and the vulnerable, you know, that's not a human universal by any means. That is very distinct to that religious tradition. Um, 
I I rec- I do recognize that even though I am personally an agnostic, I'm, I'm an agnostic mm-hmm. who is very drawn emotionally and intellectually to Christianity, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I wasn't raised in that tradition really. I, I mean, only in the sense that we all are because of the sort of, it's the air we breathe. But um, right. I think the reason that it, that the arguments resonate with people who are in that same position and have been not quite within the religious tradition is because of the of the cultural kind of afterglow the question is will that persist because if you have this rapid de-christianization i mean rapid loss of faith of every kind post 60s at what point is that going to fade entirely and can it persist without without anything upstairs without the theology in place can can the values sustain themselves i don't know i mean the the essay that i'm writing at the moment is about whether what we're seeing in terms of not just sexual ethics but all sorts of other um phenomena of, of the modern west is actually to do with us slipping back towards something much more pagan and maybe because there are there are so many interesting parallels i think between our own um 21st century society and the roman world and I, as someone who does still hold to to the, to the Judeo-Christian ideals, I don't welcome that. Yeah. Well, and I think that they always say, if you're not going to worship God, you're going to worship something. I think that's what we've discovered. Because yeah, because the, the I love the new atheists, right? Of the early, I was mm-hmm. I was this adolescent reader reading the God Delusion and everything. I thought they were so cool and so clever. <laughs> I, think were, I think they were completely wrong. I think they have been proven to be completely wrong. We, all around us, we see evidence of people who have been unmoored by loss of faith and being drawn to politics and being drawn to other kind of dysfunctional replacements. Mm-hmm. And families disintegrating. And I, I think we see all around us the wreckage of loss of faith. And to, to, you know, to the very clever people like Richard Dawkins, who seem to, on a personal level, kind of sustain themselves perfectly well without faith, that's completely perplexing. But I think that on a societal level, this is what we were talking earlier about, looking around at other cultures and, and, and seeing kind of the common themes that we might be missing. There are, Every culture has some sort of unifying story, has some sort of commitment to the supernatural I don't think it was ever, ever feasible to think that we could live without that. And if something has to get, if something has to be in its place, I think it is probably better, <laughs> like all things considered, to have faith traditions that have persisted for thousands of years than to have these like strange, new, really dysfunctional replacements for them which we see cropping up in politics. I think that's a great place to, to stop (laughs) because I mean, I think that that's, we're very much on the same page and I I really appreciate that point of view from somebody who is agnostic and who isn't practicing, but to, I hope it's okay to say it's encouraging as somebody who is a, you know, a religious Jew to hear that there's a recognition that this is comes from somewhere that it's not just, oh, well, morality sprang up out of a vacuum. There, There is a, a tradition that, you know, gave a basis. Even if that's not what you believe, it makes sense that so much of morality is built on these ideas. Um, mm. And that's, as I, I can appreciate that. <laughs> um, but I really appreciate you coming on and talking. I had a great time hearing your thoughts. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was, it was such a pleasure. I hope we'll do this again in the future when, if you ever have another book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a bow. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of Classically Ever After. If you'd like to join our community, make sure to subscribe to my Substack newsletter where you'll get access to a ton of exclusive content, including my weekly articles, exclusive Classically Abbey book club, as well as a ton of other great content. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you guys in our next episode.